Hi everybody, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real-world experience as a senior executive, so if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's actually been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Integrity School. Uh, We're in season two, and I am so fortunate to have with me today Professor Kirsten Martin. She is a professor of technology ethics at the University of Notre Dame's Mendoza School of Business. Hi, Kirsten. It's good to have you here. Hi, good to be here. Great. Kirsten is a nationally, Kirsten, sorry, is a nationally recognized expert in privacy technology and corporate responsibility. She's published numerous articles on privacy and the ethics of technology in leading academic journals, including the Journal of Business Ethics, the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology, the Journal of Legal Studies, Washington University Law Review, Journal of Business Research, as well as in practitioner publications such as MISQ Executive. Kirsten serves as technology and business ethics editor for the General Journal of Business Ethics. She's also a member of the advisory board for Future Privacy Forum, a fellow at the Business Roundtable Institute for Corporate Ethics, and she's highly regarded expert speaker on areas including privacy and the ethics of big data. And that's gonna be what we're talking all about today. (laughs) Kirsten also authored a forthcoming book um, with Ed Freeman and Bobby Palmer titled The Power of And Responsible Business Without Trade-Offs. Kirsten earned her BS in engineering from the University of Michigan and her MBA and doctorate degree from the University of Virginia's Darden Graduate School of Business. Quite an accomplishment uh, there. Many things you've been doing and we are very fortunate to have you here today. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. You're welcome. So Kirsten, we are talking all about the future of business ethics in this season two. And uh, in my opinion, you are really on the cutting edge of that with your background and experience and where you've chosen to focus. So just take a few minutes and talk with us about how you ended up getting a uh, engineering degree, but ended Mm -hmm. up focusing on um, ethics and tech. How did you arrive at where you are? Oh, that's, it's a, it's a good question because it wasn't like purposeful in a lot of ways. So I went to Michigan and got my bachelor's in science and engineering. And I, you know, I, like a lot of high schoolers, I loved math, you know, and I loved physics, but merely math. And my dad was an engineer from Michigan. We were living in Pennsylvania at the time. And so as a good alumni of the University of Michigan, I thought it was the only place to go. And I <laughs> believed it's the best place in the world, which of course I've passed on to my own children. But he also said, you really should think about engineering. And I knew a good friend of ours whose daughter was an engineer at Northwestern. And so it all seemed completely reasonable for me to go and study engineering at Michigan. And so I did industrial and operations engineering there. And then when I left, I graduated and then I went and did like systems consulting work for Anderson Consulting. I just really coded and, um, you know, designed systems and then coded those systems or implemented large, you know, ERP systems into a corporation. And I was in pharmaceuticals and mining and telecommunications and all over the place. And I did that for about four years. And I always knew that I wanted to go back and get my MBA because I just, 
I knew that I didn't really want to code forever or do those types of projects forever. Although it was a great first job because I learned a ton. Yeah. And then um, while I was getting, I went to Darden to get my MBA. And um, this is back in like 97, 99. And that's where I had Ed Freeman as my business ethics professor, my first semester there, my first year at least, my first semester. I took a couple more classes with him my second semester. Um, he, I knew that I wanted to get then. I was like, you know, I love school. I saw my business ethics professors or just all my professors at Darden. And I thought, you know, I could do that. That is something I could do. I could be a professor at a business school. And then I um, applied and then got into the Darden School of Business Biz, uh, PhD program. But by then I was already um, moving. I was going up to DC. So I went up there for a couple of years. So this is like, I, I kind of then went back to get my PhD after I worked for a couple of years in telecom. And like, this was the fancy years of web hosting and um, building out big web hosting platforms. So that was what I was doing in their strategy group. And so it's kind of funny, web hosting is just general now, but this was back in 99, 2000, 2001. Yeah, different then. And it was a lot different. It was kind of cutting edge and then went back and got my PhD at Darden. And, uh, you know, when I was there, they were great. They um, kind of said most PhD students have to take, um, so business schools, you might have already talked about this, I'm not sure, but business PhDs are a little bit different than a lot of other masters in that the masters does not count for the PhD. Mm. So your MBA, that, that coursework is so different than a master's degree. Um, that the coursework that you have to take for your PhD, which is all theoretical, whereas MBA program is really like a trade school where you learn accounting to be an accountant, yeah. um, not the theory of accounting right. or the theory of economics. And so we, um, but instead of making me take statistics, they kind of said, well, you probably already have that from being an engineer undergrad. Don't worry about learning statistics again. Uh, when I was able to go and take a bunch of classes in the engineering school with someone named Deb Johnson a professor there in science and technology studies, which is really like engineering ethics, where they talk about technology and the ethics of technology. How do we think about um, technology as being value laden and having an impact on the world and it being des designed to have certain attributes that will then force the humans to do certain things. And it was this kind of mixing together of learning how people talk in a very nuanced way about technology. Um, but then realizing that the business community were the people that actually made that technology and we didn't have a similar robust discussion mm -hmm. about the ethical implications of the technology that we were putting out into the world. We're really good on the environment or the strategy that we're taking or the way that we treat humans in the organization, um, how, what our relationships are like with suppliers, you know, what our suppliers are doing, are we responsible for that? But we weren't really talking about the goods and services that we were making um, other than like the Ford Pinto case you know, in a few kind of the Tylenol case where there were huge blowups. And, um, and so that was the mirroring of those two things. You know, in the past, um, we've been exploring um, a Harvard Business Review article that was written about 25 years ago that was describing then what's, what's the matter with business ethics. It was written by um, Andrew Stark. And he had said at the time, 25 years ago, of course, that he thought that business ethics, the way it was being taught at the time, was too general and too philosophical and too theoretical mm -hmm. to really be useful. Um, You've been exposed to it now uh, within the last mm -hmm. five years, the whole field. Do you think that's still the case today at all in any way? Um, gosh, that's a, I, you know, I guess my issue would be, I, I don't know how other people are teaching it. Like, so I don't know like a survey of the field as to how 
people teach. Because I will say the way people teach is very different than the way people do research. And so even though I'm meeting all these people at um, conferences and they're very nuanced about how they talk about their scholarship, that's not to say that they actually teach in the same way. They could go in and be lecturing about Aristotle and for all I know, never talk about an actual case. In my experience, there's a lot more thirst for cases where you start with an actual case and make people kind of work through the case to get to the theory. So start with the actual situation, ask the students to put themselves in that position, ask what they would do and get them to debate it. And then kind of in the aftermath of that case discussion, talk about what the theories were that they were talking about, whether they knew it or not, and how they illustrate major arguments that will be made in business. There's people that don't go by the, you know, business ethics rules, you know, or the business ethics philosophies are pretty apparent because they're on the front page of the newspaper or they're fired. You know, there's a joke that finance gets you hired and business ethics gets you fired. Um, so they, you know, and, and even mistakes that people make in finance or operations or accounting, unless it's some form of fraud or harm, it, you're usually not fired for it if it's just a, an accounting error or something like that. So I think that there's a lot in other fields that come to rest on people in business ethics, if that makes sense. So yeah, the accountant that commits fraud, yeah. you know, we don't blame the accounting professor. We look to the Ed Freeman and say, what were you teaching him? Why didn't you teach him not to do fraud? You know, so I think that that is one issue with the constant focus on business ethics, not teaching the right what the quote right way. So let's talk for just a few minutes about um, a couple of articles that you've written. One in particular was an MISQ uh, executive lately, and it was titled Ethical Issues in the Big Data Industry. Mm -hmm. And in that article, you examined um, big data as an industry in and of itself and the issues that arise from reselling consumers data to the secondary market for big mm -hmm. data. Um, big data, as you explained it, combines information from diverse sources to really create knowledge, make better predictions, and tailor services. So let me ask you first, whenever I think about ethics and big data, the first kind of case or issue that comes to my mind um, is Facebook and Cambridge Analytica yeah. and how all of that played out. So um, tell us a little bit more, if you wouldn't mind, about your article. Talk about that case in particular and um, share with us what some of your observations were and recommendations in the in the article to go forward. So that article was to say was to make two like levels of arguments. The first one was we need to start thinking about these companies that buy and trade information from the front-facing website to the trackers that are on the website to the data aggregators that are like sucking up from the trackers and like recombining the data. And then they pass it off and sell it to an ad network who then places ads or tries to manipulate us on a website that we're later looking at. Right. More, we need to look at that more as a supply chain. Like just like we do every other piece of goods and services that are passed along and manipulated along a supply chain. And when we think about a supply chain, there's a whole level of excuse me, supply chain um, responsibilities and who's accountable for something that goes on in the supply chain. There's an open discussion as to whether or not someone like Nike is actually responsible for the problems of their supply chain um, right. and whether or not they actually just turned a blind eye or maybe even put incentives for the poor treatment of their workers. Same with Apple more recently with Foxconn. So we have a, a pretty decent understanding and, and thought process around the supply chain um, ethics. 
And what I was asking at one level was we need to start thinking about that with the information supply chain so that we need to think about whether or not a front facing website, take the Washington Post, should be responsible for the third party trackers that it's allowing to be on that site to track me when I'm on it, right? And so we don't, we don't think about them being responsible for those third parties, but maybe we should start having them be responsible. Similar yeah. at the other end, who's responsible for the ads that I'm seeing or being manipulated by Facebook with, um, with Cambridge Analytica, who's responsible for that interaction? And what I was trying to say is I think those front facing gatekeepers that keep us watching that screen should be held more responsible for the third parties they're allowing in. So that's, that's one level of the big data industry that I was concerned about. Yep. So the other level, and you can see that playing out more and more, I have to say. So we see yeah. um, more and more, there was just, I mean, there was just an article yesterday about campaigns in 2016, uh, hyper-targeting African-Americans to suppress the vote. And, and so, that, but that level of manipulation isn't shocking to anyone in the industry. They, they just know that happens all the time. They're able to only place apartment ads for a certain race or ethnicity group, even though that's against the law. But that's, that's possible within a lot of social networks. Um, so that, that information supply chain and, and pushing out to the quote gatekeepers that I called them, the front facing consumer facing companies and asking them to be held responsible is one level. At a second level, my concern with the general industry was that the, the companies, those data aggregators that are behind the scenes, we have no relationship with them. We don't know who they are unless you read an FTC report. There's no way for you to know who those third parties are. There's no consumer um, like pressure on them to stop their bad behavior. There's no way for us to withhold our business to say, I don't like you, Axiom, a data aggregator, and I don't like what you're doing with our data. And that's odd in that they're able to um, kind of with abandon, gather and suck up data without any regard to whether or not there is a um, privacy expectation on that data, if it was gathered with our consent, there's no pressure on them to make sure that's done at all. They can just gather up the data. In fact, there's an incentive for them to actually gather the data because they can actually make money off of it. And it doesn't really matter if it abides by our expectations or not. And I liken it to, and this takes a little bit of a jump, but I liken it to the mortgage crisis back in 2008, in that you had all these banks that had an incentive to kind of suck up mortgages without any regard to whether or not they were well-documented, whether or not they um, were, you know, were underwritten well, whether or not the person actually had income. Uh -huh. They just needed mortgages to fill the tranches of these credit default swaps, right? Setting the credit default obligations. And so in the beginning, there was almost a push. People, I went and got a mortgage or I refinanced my mortgage. And then the mortgage holder would say, oh, I got to sell this thing. Who yeah. wants it? And right. then they turned around and gave it to somebody. Right. And eventually, the profits from creating those CDOs and CDSs became so great that there was almost a turn and a pull to say, we need more mortgages. Can you go out and get more mortgages? I don't care how you get them. Just get those mortgages. And so we got worse and worse mortgages, right? Like with no no doc loans, you know, no one, no real income, people buying three or four houses. And there was this great demand for mortgage originators to actually go and get mortgages no matter what. You can almost see the same thing happen in the very beginning when people tracked all these people who were going online and people would turn around and say, I've got this data, anyone want it? The data aggregators were kind of like, okay, yeah, sure, that looks great. Like, I'll, I'll take that data. And so they bought the data or they put trackers on the website. And eventually that back end became so profitable 
that the data aggregators were like, look, we'll do whatever you need, become a weather app, a flashlight app, a scan, a PDF app. It's just a front. They're just trying to like gather your data, get your contacts, your photos, your GPS. All these apps are just kind of um, fronts to be able to gather your data however they can. They're not actually concerned with being able to scan a document, give you the right weather, or be a flashlight app. They're really just there to gather your data. And so in the same way that it used to be a push, people just gave over their data and then people would ask, does anyone want it? Oh, these data aggregators do. In the same way, we now have almost a polling where the data aggregators just want more and more data, more and more um, fine-tuned data about us to be able to paint a broader picture. And it's actually placing a demand for more and more of our data. And that's why you see more apps and more websites gathering a wider range of our data that they don't even need. Like, wow. so there's no need for that data. But at the time right now, there's no pressure on them. There's not even, at least back in the 2008 crisis, there actually were people that had to go and check, you know, people that checked the credit default obligations and credit default swaps, they were audited on a regular basis. Now they didn't work very well. Like, so I'm not saying that that was perfect, but there was at least somebody asking questions. Right now, those data aggregators, they can do whatever they want with that data. Like, and they can sell it to an ad network, they can sell it to a foreign company, a country. Like, so anyone can use it to manipulate or target us however they want. And that's the way I saw it back in 2015 was the same type of unregulated kind of gathering of data to be able to use without any market pressure, not from stockholders, not from employees, and not from consumers, which are the main touch points on businesses as to where the market might sure. make a correction, so to speak, as right. to their bad behavior. So what, what did you, what do you, what do you think now, uh, five years later after writing that article about the state of affairs and what do you think ethically should happen with data aggregators? What I argue is that the oddest um, issue right now is that if an economist just came down from the sky and plopped into our world, he or she would say, how did these folks get your information if you didn't give it to them? Mm -hmm. Like that's the weird thing because back in like the 60s and 70s when different approaches to the economics of privacy and the economics of information were first being put out there, obviously the way information could travel was really, really different. It, right. They just made certain assumptions. They there's a, a group of people from Chicago that just would argue, you know, if you disclose the information, we're just going to assume that it's free for someone to use because they made the assumption that it's always easier to ask the person for the information. No one's going to buy or sell information. They literally say that because it's too expensive and the machines would be too big. Like who could ever hold that data? Nobody could. The oddest thing right now is the question, how did these companies get our data, data aggregators, ad networks, when we did not give it to them? And in fact, that is the, what we need to do is add in those safeguards that every other company has in place when they share those, um, share their data with another company is to add back those safeguards is to say, we need to have those companies being audited. So I would recommend that they are actually audited like with gap-like principles around data integrity, that they have to answer once a year or once a quarter as to what they're doing with the data, who do they buy and sell it to, Right. Um, how is it being used? Is it in the best interest of the individuals on which they hold data? Right. And then that's one. And that would add a big cost to those data aggregators. So there could be some data aggregators that just say, I can't do that. It's too expensive um, because what I do, I don't want to explain. And so I'm just going to go out of business. And in my mind, that's okay. Like, so if they don't want to be audited, they should just stop. And that would have to be, it would have to be a government um, group within say treasury or commerce that would actually go and do that type of work. The FTC could do it as well. There's different theories of that. 
Right. So that's number one, is to put a bigger cost on those data aggregators. But then the second is that I think those gatekeepers, like the front-facing firm that I go to when I go in the Washington Post and the New York Times, huh? I think they should have to be responsible and say, we've looked in all of our suppliers. They actually abide by these data integrity principles. And so we only allow third parties in to get your data that we've approved. Mm -hmm. And they have to affirmatively say that. And that that's not... It's funny, like that actually is done in other instances. So for example, hospitals are actually held responsible for the third parties that they bring into the hospital, right? Like, so we have a relationship with the hospital. We don't have to separately make sure that the third parties they bring in yeah. to give us medical care right. or kosher or okay. We just make sure the hospital is actually in charge of that relationship because we're there um, and we have to be. Universities bring in people from career services. They, we don't have to vet every single company. The, we're kind of, if we're a student, we're held kind of like within the trust of the university. The university vets those companies before right. they come in and interview. Right. So this idea of being responsible for third parties isn't odd. It's something that we've done, you know, in other areas of life, especially when the consumer can't be held responsible for what those third parties are doing. Um, and that, that customer facing firm or company is like in the best place, in the best position. So those are the two things that I recommend. One is consumer facing companies need to be held responsible and actually affirmatively say, I've checked out these third parties. Mm -hmm. They abide by these principles. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can check them out yourself, but I've, I'm saying that they're um, okay and they abide by the principles that I want. Right. And then those third parties that are behind the scenes, I think they need to have a data ethics professional that responds to audits on a regular basis. And that would make them track how they're using the data, which they don't right now. So let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about ethics and AI. You wrote another article about that recently as well in the MISQ executive um, magazine mm -hmm. and how those two um, live together. And what you say in that article essentially is that it's, Artificial intelligence and algorithms are biased, uh, just mm -hmm. like other decisions that, mm -hmm. that humans make. And so mm -hmm. the question is, as we rely more and more on technology and algorithms, what can we do to make it less biased? Because, you know, there have been a lot of examples of things going really badly wrong with algorithms, like the Uber right. driving car that crashed, you know, didn't recognize the human form outside of the crosswalk. You know, the right. black man that was charged with a crime that he didn't commit, right. multi-facial technology, right. you know, the right. Apple Pay card. I mean, who, who knows for sure whether right. or not they were making appropriate credit determinations, but there were arguments out there that they weren't and that people right. attempted it with, you know, men and women who had the same backgrounds, um, but the men got more credit than the women did. So what do we, what do we do? What is your, what did you have to say about that in your article and where do yeah. we go from there? You know, I think, I think some of the mistake is, so... Well, I shouldn't use the word mistake because I use the mistake word mistake in that article all the time. So part of the issue that we're dealing with right now is that we see these types of mistakes and um, and and what we should as uh, anomalies, like almost surprised that they are occurring. And I think just like every other human decision, because it's really just an AI augmented decision. There's still humans that are working at the company. Yep that these are gonna make mistakes. The problem that we have as a business is that they're made faster and they're also made, um, so the impact is larger and it's more likely they'll get caught. So right. that's part of the problem. So if you imagine, if you imagine a whole bunch of people asking for credit, um, taking the Apple case, or maybe the easier one might be like whether or not you get insurance, just to pick on the insurance industry. If there were a whole bunch of insurance agents, all not really coordinated, barely they have the same policy manual, but they're all spread out across the nation. If you have a few that are biased, you know, it's, it's gonna, 
um, it may be a problem, but it's, it, there's also gonna be some that are not that biased. And so it's gonna not just exactly wash out, but it's not gonna be so prevalent. Yeah. The problem that we have is what this does is it centralizes the bias and it codifies it. So now everyone's on the same page as to what the quote right answer is. And so that's why we see instances of this so much more is because it's more uniform. Everyone's getting the same treatment. Um, so if we at least step back and think that AI is not this panacea to actually get rid of bias. In fact, there was an HBR article that was literally said, you want less biased decisions, use AI. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, so that, but that's the wrong answer mm -hmm. only because it makes us think that the decision doesn't need governing. Right. So when we have humans, we're constantly checking to say, did we let the right people into the university this year? Did the right people, were the right people hired? Um, you know, how well did we retain these people? When it's human, we always know it's fallible. So we're constantly looking over our shoulders and thinking, are we making the right decision? How can we check to make sure that we made the right decision? Right. So in some ways that article was just asking the same level of governance that we do over humans. You've got to have the same level of governance over AI and be thoughtful about like the computer programming that you're putting in to say, okay, mistakes are going to happen. Which mistakes do we prefer? Do we prefer a false positive? I hire someone that I shouldn't have. Or do I prefer a false negative? I let someone go that I should have hired. And that, that, that changes based on each context. Sometimes even in the hiring decision at the early stages, you want to let more people in, right, for diversity and inclusion. But at the very end, you really don't want to hire the right person. So in the end, you're better to defer to like the false negative to say, look, I, I let the wrong person go, but I'm okay with that. So mm -hmm. it just is to say that there, the types of mistakes, one, mistakes are normal. And we should expect and predict mistakes and just assume they're going to happen. And the question is more, how do I identify a mistake when it occurs? Make sure that I have an apparatus to check. How do I judge to whether or not it's a good mistake or not? Do I prefer it to the alternative? And then finally, how can I correct the mistake so it doesn't kind of get in this vicious feedback loop where I'm just, right. the mistake is being compounded over and over oh, again. And Kathy O'Neill had a great book on this called The Weapons of Math Destruction, M-A-T-H Destruction. But the main takeaway of that book was that sometimes this AI can, um, what it feeds on itself with machine learning can actually create bigger problems than we had before because the biased decision is feeding back in to train the algorithm and then it kind of goes on from there. The main takeaway was that mistakes are normal, you know, they're expected and an unethical decision is one where those mistakes are not governed, that right. we have to talk about the governance of those decisions, not whether or not it made a mistake as being wrong. Yeah. Mistakes are common and yeah. predicted. Yeah. And so we just need to talk about the governance of it. Well, it certainly is an evolving field. And you are, again, are right at the apex, I would say, of, of leading into the future. So if I were to ask you mm -hmm. what three words were to describe what you see as the future of business ethics, what do you think uh, it would be? So, so I think that's a good question. Um, so this I will say as a... Um, in both scholarship and in practice. Uh -huh. I think there's going to be a backlash towards more marginalized stakeholders. And what I mean by that are stakeholders that are legitimate, that have claims that are legitimate, but uh -huh. have almost no power, and they have almost no relationship with the company. And so the people that would be, this would be are people like um, victims of revenge porn, um, cyber bullies, you know, and the people who are cyber bullied. Um, you know, teens that were using vaping products. These are, these are folks that really have not a lot of power in the world, yet are disproportionately affected by the actions of business. And I don't think our current 
conversations. I just did a quick, like, uh, oh, so the victims of Gamergate, uh, a great example from X number, like that's like 10 years ago, where women in the software industry were being really bullied online um, and kind of like real threats going after them. And the platforms and the companies with which they work just kind of said, oh, what's, what's to do? You know, there's nothing really we can do about this. There were no laws on the book at the time. They didn't really have much of a say. I mean, they had a legitimate claim against the platforms and the companies that they worked for. And yet there was kind of a hands-off approach. If you look in the business ethics scholarship, there's no, no one has ever mentioned Gamergate. It's never come up in scholarship. And so I think that that's another area where I think that there's, there's a continually um, people affected by technology that aren't consumers, if that yeah. makes sense. So aren't giving money to the technology. Yes. And we within business ethics and business schools and in practice have a hard time thinking about them. We don't know how to deal with it because in the past, the only thing we could think about was, you know, if I drove a car and it accidentally hurt someone on the street, right? I had to worry about that. But that was actually the driver's fault unless I had faulty brakes and then there was a tort claim and someone sued me. I mean, like, so that's the level that we worried about, like other parties being injured. The only other time it's come up was with pollution and the communities around a company. Yeah. And that we were slow on that too. Uh, yeah. um, so we, we within scholarship and within practice were slow being able to think about, well, how do I think about the community when I don't have a financial relationship with them? So I think that that's one place, that's a general area, but yeah. I do see that as a place where business and business schools and business ethics struggle with having the theories to deal with it, if that makes sense. We usually assume, now this isn't what Ed Freeman meant with stakeholders. You know, Ed, Ed Freeman actually would include those people as stakeholders because they were influenced by the technology. Uh -huh. However, a lot of people who use stakeholder theory think that there has to be some sort of financial relationship with the other party. And so we've kind of gone away from, I would say, the original ideas around stakeholder theory in that way. Yeah. Um, so that's one, marginalized stakeholders. Okay. Um, although it kind of encompasses a lot. Um, it does. Yeah, I think, I think automation in general, including facial recognition, is gonna be big. Um, I think businesses' relationship with the government is going to come up. That is a big piece of concern for a lot of um, employees. Um, and so um, whether or not companies, um, like I'm just thinking about uh, Palantir just got in a lot of flack because they have a relationship with ICE where they helped yep. with the detention of immigrants coming across the border. Yes. And it's not whether or not, I think we within the business ethics community and maybe professors in general aren't as attuned to what 22 year olds are talking about. But when 22 year old engineers are talking about where they want to work. They're not mentioning Facebook and Google anymore. They're not mentioning Palantir. You know what I mean? Like as they, there's almost a backlash against those groups um, and somewhat for the relationship with the government. Um, and so that'll be interesting to watch how that's impacted. Mm -hmm. So that I would say those are yeah. three areas. Yeah, those are really good. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I feel like we could talk for hours because there's just so much information here to sort of digest and, and think about. So let's end on a, a fun question that I like to ask everybody. What are some recent, if you've got them, shows or books or podcasts that you've been watching or reading or listening to uh, that are fun, uh, but also have this, yeah. you know, ethical or technical and ethics combined lens to them? Oh yeah. Oh, so, okay. So I would, I would say, I can talk about like the ethical one. The, the one that I have been enjoying over quarantine uh -huh. is actually Gra Grey's Anatomy. So <laughs> I have been back 
looking at Grey's Anatomy, I'd never watched it, but we, there's a group of my family, there's three of us that all watch it together. And it is interesting to see uh, the dilemmas that come up and how we will debate as to whether or not somebody did the right thing working for that hospital. Well, that's yeah. a good one. I have to admit, I haven't watched Grey's Anatomy, but I think I may pick it up. It'll now. suck you in. Yeah. <laughs> and there's lots of seasons. So it's a really good COVID one. Exactly. Yeah. And they're still making them. So like, I'm not even caught up yet. So I have plenty of time. Okay, very good. Well, Kirsten, this has been fabulous. And congratulations to you for your new role there at Notre okay. Dame. I look forward to seeing what's going to be happening with the Tech Ethics Center there. And uh, thanks for just joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your work. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us, and you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.